Wonderful singing. Thank you for singing along in the praise of our Lord. We sang a song, How did my heart rejoice to hear my friends devoutly say, referring to assembly, how did my heart rejoice? Attendance by itself is worthless. Attendance, let's be honest, is offensive to God. If you don't come with delight in your heart and you just sang, how did my heart rejoice to hear my friends devoutly say about meeting in Zion? That delighting in the Sabbath from Isaiah 58 is my heart rejoicing in being at an assembly. Let's not be like Catholics and measure attendance. Let's measure the zeal of our hearts and our love that's going to show on faces. It's going to be conveyed in words. It's going to be conveyed by the time you arrive and the time you leave, how much your heart desires to be in the worship of God in an assembly with your friends, devoutly saying, let's meet in Zion today. And every Lord's Day, we meet in Zion. So let's fulfill what we sang, and let's fulfill Isaiah 58, the last two verses that plainly describe the same thing as does Psalm 122, from which that song was taken, about delighting in the Lord by delighting in his worship. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. The Lord's led us in our study of this book, and we're nearing the end. Some have written and saying they're getting a little uncomfortable with the idea of ending Isaiah and not having its chapters before them on a weekly basis. But the Lord willing, he will lead us to some other place in Scripture that might even be better than Isaiah. Now, I say that for the New Testament because we should value the New Testament more than these obscure prophecies of the old, though the Lord has blessed us very kindly, very abundantly in studying Isaiah. Isaiah 59. We have 21 verses instead of 14. And we're going to cover the middle verses rather quickly because I want to get to verse 16. Sorry, I'll go ahead and tell you where I'm headed. I want to get to verse 16 because verses 16 through 19 has some of the grandest language in the Bible about God arming himself like a knight to go out and rescue his bride, the church. And, and it's beautiful terminology, and we'll get to it in a few minutes. Isaiah 59 has this theme. God deserted his people. God deserted them. God deserted his church due to their complete corruption by sin. So then he saved them by himself. Since he could find no intercessor or deliverer for them, he chose to save them by himself. And so that's the theme. There's only five sections of this chapter, and let's get right into the first one, which is closely connected to chapter 58. In chapter 58, the church of God in Babylon, there for 70 years by chastening, for chastening of God for their sins, fasted and made a pretense of fasting and God didn't hear them. And so now that same issue of God not hearing and God not saving is going to be brought up in these first two verses. So I read about the lack of God's favor toward the Jews was due to their sins. The lack of God's favor 
was due to their sins. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. He can hear because he has ears. In the metaphorical language of the Bible to indicate that he does answer prayers. But he refuses to hear. He will not hear when we sin. And so I started off with Isaiah, with Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 66 and verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Behold, the Lord's hand is still the strongest hand in the universe. His ears are the most attentive to anyone in the universe. But sins had separated Israel from God, broken the fellowship, so that God would not hear them nor reach forth his arm to save them. And so they were 70 years in Babylon, 70 years in exile, 70 years in captivity. And everything appeared dark and hopeless as we're going to read in the middle verses of this chapter. But then the Lord delivered them as we get to the end of the chapter. God doesn't have hands or ears in the true sense of the word, like ours, literally, but these metonyms represent his strength of saving and his hearing and answering of prayer. He did bring Israel out of Egypt by his strong hand and his outstretched arm, and the Bible tells us that. Any lack of God's protection or prosperity is not due at all to any deficiency in him. Any lack of you not living the best life possible is because your sins have separated between you and God. And he's withdrawn his help. He's withdrawn his fellowship. He no longer answers your prayers. He will not hear them. I'm not going to listen to that person. They're playing games with me. Yeah, they go to church once in a while, but so what? They don't really want to be there. They don't engage with their fellows around them of like precious faith. They don't consider anyone. They don't do anything for anyone. I'm not going to hear them. And so all the efforts at praying aren't heard. And all the begging or fasting and asking God to deliver, there's no answer because sins have made that difference. Any perceived neglect on his part must be due to something totally different than his inability. You have shortened God's hand. You have stopped up his ear, or I have, by our sins. It's common for men to ask foolish questions or to claim confusion by God's withdrawal, but there's no mystery here. It's our sins. Lord, save us. Your iniquities. Sin is the issue. Sin is always the issue. I'm not happy in my marriage. Your sin is the issue. It's not your spouse. Your sins keep you from enjoying God's best for your life. If you would confess your sins and forsake them and repent the Bible way, God can give you a feast of fat things and set a table for you in the wilderness. You can be happy regardless of your spouse. And that is how every married person ought to live. 
because the spouse is always going to disappoint. In There will be times that every spouse will disappoint in every marriage. Not that every spouse is always disappointing, but there will be disappointments in every marriage by any spouse because we're all sinners. Now, I've used marriage just to get your attention that if you want to live God's best for your life, go after yourself. Don't examine your spouse. You can't change them anyway. And if you talk to Sherry or me, we're not going to talk about your spouse. We're going to talk about you because it's your iniquities and it's your sins in verse 2 that have caused God to hide his face from you. He will not hear you and he will not bless you. A person that confesses their sins and makes Jesus Christ, the leader and commander of Isaiah 55, the most important person in their lives and the most important subject for their thoughts and their affection is going to live. And if you look anywhere else for a substitute, you will be sorely disappointed. The happiest married people have the Lord first. The happiest married people do not have each other first. They have the Lord first. And when the Lord is first, everything works better because he enhances your marriage and you know how to love better than if you didn't have him first. It's, and the, the Lord will then answer your prayers about making your marriage better. I'm just using that as an example. I'm using that as an example of something you may wish was different in your life. I don't think any of you are captives in Babylon. So I need an example. You're not captives in Babylon. You're captives in your marriage. Don't say it that way. Don't say it that way. Deliver yourself. Confess your sins. And make the Lord the, the, the love of your life. And make him the thought of your, your mind. And he'll bless you. These people weren't going to get anywhere because of their sins. And these two verses tell us that. Let's get into the next section. Verses 3 through 8. God charged them with sins of all kinds. Verses 3 through 8. God charged them with sins of all kinds. So let's read about all kinds of sin. I'll read six verses, three through eight. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. What an indictment. Can you imagine the court of heaven with the angels standing by and God sitting at his throne and an angel brings this report about the church. This is how the church, after the time of Isaiah, after Manasseh, after his son Ammon, lived. And then they were taken captive. And there was so much sin in the nation, you just read a list, a laundry list, as we like to say, 
of the sins. Now, we don't need to go through every one of these phrases, and we're not going to. It's in the outline. You can look up every one of these phrases and what they mean. But the nation was guilty of many different kinds of sins that infected their whole relationship with God so that in the first two verses, he would not hear and he would not help. They had shortened his arm. Who wants to shorten the arm of the Almighty? Whose eyes roam the whole earth, looking for whom he may show himself strong on their behalf. That's how I want God seeing me and ready to reach forth that strong right hand and outstretched arm of his. But the reason he wasn't for the Jews is because of their sins. What isn't he doing for you because of your sins? What prayers isn't he hearing because of your sins? Is the question we need to ask. Does my life please God? Or is there somewhere in this list that I'm guilty of these sins? Let's just get started with the first one and see if we can make a little progress in helping you examine yourself. It says, for your hands are defiled with blood. How many in here have their hands defiled with blood? You say, not me, pastor. I say you lie. And so now you're just guilty of another one in the passage. And I say that's a vain thought on your part. You're guilty of another place in the passage. Jesus said when he took the law of God and applied it to life, that if we're angry with our brother without a cause, we are guilty of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. If we, here, are you serious? Are we getting back to relationships again? Even if we're angry with a brother without a cause, and if we call someone a fool without a justifiable reason, we're in danger of the judgment? We're in danger of hell, fire? Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 26. Yes, your hands are defiled with blood in the way that God interprets his word. You don't have to have blood actually dripping from them because you used a knife and were the slasher of Greenville. But if you are angry without a cause, cruel, you're guilty of slander, backbiting, whispering, tail-bearing, unkind thoughts, unmerciful, ungracious, malicious, envious, you're guilty. So if we start through this list and wanted to apply it to ourselves, we would let the spectacles of the New Testament interpret the Old Testament statements the way Jesus did. See, it was Pharisees that said, the sixth commandment only means if I stab a person and have blood on my hands. Jesus said, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty of the sixth commandment. So as we look at this long list, we can see sins of murder and lies of lips and perverseness of a tongue in verse 3. That's filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting. See, it just says perverseness here. But what is perverse speech? Well, you come to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and the, Paul lists filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting as being comparable sins to uncleanness and fornication. So we can't get past the first verse. If we want to be prayer warriors in our church, then we must examine our lives and make sure our relationships are right, that our speech is kind and good and profitable and always with grace. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. 
But this was not the case among the Jews. Verse 4, none would stand up for others and demand justice or plead for truth. They all trust in worthless things. They speak lies. They're always planning mischief. They bring forth iniquity. They're like snakes. A cockatrice is a serpent. They're, they're like snakes. If you, if you find their eggs and participate with them in any way, you die. If you crush their eggs by trying to resist them a little bit, but not enough by getting away from them, then it'll break forth into a viper and bite you. It's, it's describing some truly wicked people. But let's make sure we don't even get near this list. Their webs, you know, they spin a web of deceit and a web of covetous greed, and it's not going to clothe them and it's not going to bear fruit because the Lord won't let it because their web in verse 6 and their garment will not cover them. Their works are works of iniquity and the act of violence is in their hands. Then verses 7 and 8, just for your information, and you should recognize these words a little bit. Their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. This verse and the first part of the next verse, Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, to indict all mankind, Jews and Gentiles, of total depravity. And so this is, this is where it comes from, Isaiah 59. Paul used Isaiah 59 in proving the depravity of man by describing them as their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Not only do they do things against others, but they do them in a hurry. They greedily run after the abuse of others. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Fantasies. Fantasies of positive and negative kinds. Fantasies, I want that that I don't have and shouldn't have. Fantasies, I can't stand that person and I hope they get into trouble. All those thoughts should come out of our heads because then we're guilty of crimes against others. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. The act of violence is in their hands. They run to evil. They don't know the way of peace, wasting and destruction. They destroy marriages. They destroy happiness. They destroy hope. Father, have you destroyed hope in your children? Husband, have you ever destroyed hope in your wife? Wife, have you destroyed hope in your husband that, can, that he can ever have a godly marriage by you being a cheerful cheerleader in his life instead of a nagging picker? The way of peace they know not. Some people can't get along with others. No one wants to be around them. We will obligingly attend their funerals to see them dropped in the ground. But they, because they don't know the way of peace, let's always make peace. The New Testament tells us to make peace over and over. There's no judgment in their goings. They don't do things the right way. They're not right. They're not kind. They're not charitable. They're not gracious. They're not merciful. They're rough. They're hard. They're tough. They're critical. They're negative. They have made them crooked paths, and whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. If you even hang around these people and follow them, you're going to cost yourself peace because they have no peace. Wow! This is God addressing his church. This is not God addressing the Babylonians. This is not God addressing any other nation on earth but his own people. And it's severe. And he doesn't miss anything, does he? He's got them pretty thoroughly covered, which means he has us pretty thoroughly 
covered. Many more things could be said, but let's go to the next lesson. Verses 9 through 15. Their sins that we just had described to us, here's, here's this section, here's this lesson. Their sins that I just listed for you left the nation hopelessly lost. Now here's a little interesting aspect of verses 9 through 15. Isaiah jumps to the first person. Isaiah has been blasting the Jews in verses 3 through 8. Your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue. Are you with me? Okay. He indicts them for God by telling them what kind of sinners they are. But when a group of people, a nation, a church, has a large number of people living like that, it will bring hopeless despair on the whole group. And so Isaiah is going to jump to we, us, we, us. And if you followed the suggestions last night in your preparatory Bible study, then you read Daniel chapter 9. Did Daniel confess their sins or did Daniel confess our sins? We have done this. We have done that. Oh, yes. That is being an intercessor. That's getting right in there with the nation. Though Daniel was not guilty of all those crimes, he jumped right in there and on their behalf and for them prayed. And when you pray for President Trump, as you heard me, it is from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, emphasizing verse 2, where it says, For our rulers, we are to make supplication, intercede, pray, and give thanks. President Trump may not pray today for himself, but we can for him. Isaiah is going to jump in and confess the sins of the people and the hopelessness that their sins brought, that they need deliverance, that the nation is in a mess. This lesson looks more at the consequences rather than the cause. Verses 3 through 8 was the cause of God not hearing them. Verses 9 through 15 are further consequences of sin. If you allow sin in your life, it is going to darken everything. It is going to bring darkness, despair, discouragement, and take away your hope. If you allow sin in your life. I'm about to read it to you. I just wanted to set the framework so as I read it to you, you're going to understand most of what needs to be said. Beginning at verse 9 through verse 15, their sins, which were listed in verses 3 through 8, left the nation hopeless. Verse 9, Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. 
for our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Amen and amen. It displeased God to look at this nation and not see the kind of a strong leader that it needed to rescue it from depravity and from immorality and from captivity in Babylon. There wasn't a redeemer. There wasn't an intercessor, the likes of which could save the nation because their case was too far gone. For those of you that remember, I have shared with you from Ezekiel 14, 14, and from Jeremiah 15, 1, five great men. Those five great men were intercessors that saved families and nations at different times. But the reason those five men are listed together is God telling the Jews, if they were to show up, they could not save you because your sins have gone so far, they could not save you by their intercession. Manasseh went too far. And so God purposed to judge the nation. And he said, even if Daniel was here, even if Job was here, even if Moses was here, Noah was here, or Samuel was here, it wouldn't do any good. I am purposed to destroy you and to put you into captivity in Babylon. So that's what he means when he says there was no intercessor, even though we know Daniel was praying for them, Daniel by himself wasn't enough. Daniel was just one little pawn in the great big Babylonian government. I mean, they had to send for him the night that all the lords were feasting with Belshazzar because he wasn't there. He wasn't enough. There needed to be a bigger, better deliverer. There needed to be a real knight that would ride up on a white horse and strap on his armor and go to battle with the enemy. So that when the enemy came in like a flood, there would be a knight, a lord, a leader, and a commander that would stand up, that Jehovah would stand up with his right arm and save them, and that he would rectify the nation by granting them repentance to come back and keep his commandments, which he did with a fabulous revival and restoration out of Babylon. But I get ahead of myself. Let's look back at verse 9. And just see that when there's that many wicked people in a nation, there's no judgment. And Isaiah has jumped to the first person about himself instead of the sinners being they or your. Second person. I want you to see it again by looking at verse 3. Your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue. Verse 9. Us. Us. We. We. Now, will you pray for our church that way? Will you pray for our nation that way? By just jumping in and telling the Lord, we have sinned against thee. 
and there is no judgment left in the land. Will you have mercy? Daniel did that. And if you read Daniel 9, Daniel did one tremendous job of one great prayer, but it was in the first person about we and us. What great men. God told Moses, here's how intercessors act. Moses, step back, and I will burn up this whole nation, and I'll start over with you. Moses runs into the middle of them, falls on his face, and uses some of the best reasoning in the Bible that God should not do that, and God should have mercy on them. When he did it that one time in the Old Testament, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Or did he do it more than one time? Did he do it over and over? He did it over and over. What an intercessor. Verse 11, we roar like bears. Isn't anybody going to do something? We mourn. It's never going to get better. We look for judgment, but there isn't any. We want to be saved out of the city of Babylon, but it is far off from us. There's no way that they could envision being delivered out of Babylon. The mighty Babylon, the queen city of the earth, the great empire, these little captive Jews, no city to go to, no, no respect for their God. He's mocked in the parties of Babylon. Verse 12, because God sees all our sins. We know them and we know he knows them. This is how you should pray. This is Isaiah being an intercessor, but not a good enough intercessor. Do you follow me on that? Hopefully our church hasn't reached that extent. I hope that this description here doesn't apply to us, that we can intercede for our church and for our nation. There are yet many righteous in our nation. Let's save this Sodom and Gomorrah by praying for God to see the righteous in it. Verse 13, in all the transgression and lying, and, and lying against God, saying that we love him, but departing away from him and not keeping his ways. Instead, pursuing oppression and revolt. Things like we read about in Isaiah 58, the chapter of the first service today. Verse 14, judgment is turned away backward. Justice standeth afar off. Truth is fallen in the street. And this truth, there's two kinds of truth in this respect. Truth of your dealings with other people, that you always deal openly and honestly like the Apostle Paul, when he would take a collection from a church and send it to another church, he would provide things honest in the sight of all men. And he was very, very careful about it. That's truth in our dealings. Then there's truth in doctrine. And you know, today, both are fallen. But the emphasis in this particular passage, as you should be able to tell, is not truth in doctrine as much as truth in relationships and dealings with others because there was so much oppression and the lack of justice and the lack of judgment and snakes at work and spiders spinning their webs. We want to be transparently, perfectly, completely honest. These are terrible words in verse 14. Truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. There's further evidence that we're talking about truth in relationships, truth in business practices, truth in dealings with others, because equity is attached to it rather than doctrine or sacrifices or commandments or precepts or judgments. Truth faileth, in verse 15. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. It was so bad 
that if you determined yourself to repent and you were going to live a godly life, you become a prey of persecutors in your own church. Does that sound familiar? Let me think. Where have else have I read that in the New Testament recently? Where did I read about perilous times and the 19 traits of perilous times? Did it say that Christians would become despisers of them that are good? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Do you love the more righteous in the congregation than you? Do you love them? Do you appreciate them? Do you thank God for them? Do you commend them? Do you praise them? He that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it. The Lord sees everything. The Lord saw verses 3 through 8. And the Lord saw verses 9 through 15. That there was no justice. There was no judgment. Truth failed. Nobody would stand up for the oppressed. They were all evil. They were like snakes. They were like spiders. Spinning their webs of deceit. They were liars. They had departed from him. They said that they were loyal to him. They said he was their God. Then they departed in all their practice. And so this is one terrible indictment of the Jews. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. In my late teenage years, God spoke to me by Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. And I sought for a man among them that would stand, be, stand in the gap before me and make up the hedge for the land. And I found none. Well, now, what about Jeremiah? He did. What about Daniel? He did. But they weren't good enough for how bad the nation was. They weren't good enough. So when the Lord looked, there wasn't anyone righteous enough and there wasn't anyone strong enough to have a religious revival and reform of the nation and to deliver them out of the hands of Babylon and to bring them back home. There wasn't anyone righteous enough or strong enough to bring that to pass. Jeremiah couldn't. Jeremiah was down in a pit, remember? He, that isn't exactly an evidence of strength. Daniel was a eunuch. That's not exactly an evidence of strength. I, ho I hope you're following with This is sort of a rabbit trail. It's for you to understand why there was no intercessor when you know there were some godly men. But God has already told us, even if the five great ones stood up, it's too late. But who says it's too late for our church? Who says it's too late for your family? Who says it's too late for our nation? Let's stand up as men, and I'm speaking to the men right now. Let's stand up. And let's plug that hole. Let's take that gap out of the way. Let's make up the hedge for the Lord and for this land. For our country, second. For our church, first. Let's have some men that will stand up and be intercessors and be leaders and lead their families in righteousness and godliness. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. So the, the, end, the conclusion at this point in Isaiah 59 is, the nation, the church, is hopeless. They're captive in Babylon. Jeremiah's back in Judah. Daniel's a eunuch. And Daniel's a very old man by this time. Daniel's 90 years old. Who's going to deliver them? 
now I get to verses 16 through 19. Verses 16 through 19 are why people love the book of Isaiah. It has some turns of speech that are just wonderful. And these four verses are wonderful. Isaiah chapter 59 at verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Amen and amen. Wonderful verses describing God as a knight, God as a captain, putting on his armor. I mean, his cloak is zeal. Can you see that captain riding into battle? It should thrill your souls that when he saw there was no man, he took up the task. I'll deliver them myself. Now, brethren, I could spin you a tale right now like a spider spinning a web about this being Jesus Christ on Calvary, but we're not there yet. That's the last two verses of this passage because the Apostle Paul takes the last two verses of this passage and uses them in Romans chapter 11. This is the issue at hand. And the result is the issue that all the 40s were about. By the time we get to Isaiah 59, I believe we went through 10 chapters of the 40s. And if we went through 10 chapters of the 40s, what is the big deal that God is going to get himself glory through? He is going to raise up the man from the east. He called for a debate in chapter 41. Do you remember? He named this man in 44 and 45. He said, I'm going to give you all the treasures of darkness so that you will know that there is a God and he's the God of Israel. And sure enough, Cyrus put in writing as a proclamation for the Persian government the God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the world and hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. That is God strapping on his armor, bringing about a reformation, and Cyrus saying, any one of you that wants to go back and is serious about the worship of your God and wants to rebuild the temple and rebuild the capital city, you're welcome to take leave of this empire. And I will arrange for there to be expenses taken out of the tax tribute money on the other side of the river. It's just tremendous. And so when we look at these verses, there was no man to save Israel, the church at that time, from God's judgment. So he chastened them for 70 years, and then he delivered them himself. By raising up this unknown man, Cyrus the... He became the great. He wasn't born Cyrus the Great. He was born little itty-bitty Cyrus. But he became great by God's blessing. And that's why we went through the 40s. And you know, I have a time limit 
I can't preach forever to you by reviewing everything you're supposed to remember. But do you remember the 40s? They were all about the two, two aspects of one event. Cyrus delivering the church out of Babylon. Two aspects. I will raise up Cyrus to take the city of Babylon in one night. Second aspect. I will tell you in detail about it in advance so that when it happens, you know that I'm the only God on this earth. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, I am the only God and there is none beside me. Did he say that two or three times in the 40s? That there's no God beside me? Or did he say it two or three hundred times? He said it over and over because that was a huge event. Look back at Isaiah 45. I am not going to turn you. I'm going to turn you to one place maybe. Isaiah 45. You, you need to remember things. It's only been a few weeks. So that when we come to this passage, we don't leap to the cross unjustifiably. Because notice, it's all about crushing enemies. I thought the cross was to save people. But this is about crushing enemies. What enemies is he going to recompense and crush in the islands? What happened on the cross about the islands of him wrecking vengeance on someone in the islands? It doesn't fit. We have a situation of God's church captive in Babylon and hopeless because of the lifestyles of the people. There's no righteousness. There's no deliverer. Righteousness and salvation. Salvation being deliverance out of Babylon is far off. Who can even dream of it? The Lord dreamt of it. And the Lord named the man a hundred years before he was born. Look at 45. If we jump on verse 1, we, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. This is God's anointed. This is God's Savior. This is God's deliverer, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou, Cyrus, may, mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Is that the exact or very similar language to what we have in 59? Right there. That they may know from the rising of the sun, that's the east, and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. When there was no intercessor and there was no one for a righteous and religious revival and reform, and when there was no one that could deliver from the mighty empire of Babylon, I strapped on my weapons of war, and I went against my adversaries and against my enemies that defiled my temple and took it down to the ground and took the instruments of my worship and used them to toast their gods in Babylon. I had my cloak of zeal, and I came against them, and I took them out in one night. And I told it in advance. And I named the man that I would use in advance because I raised him up. I held his hand. I was in front. I led him. I had the gates open for him. 
And so you come back to a verse like 6, and see, 45 is right in the middle of the 40s. And 45.6 is about God delivering the church out of Babylon by Cyrus. And in the spectacular way that he's going to do it. And that he told it all in advance. And so that's God becoming the champion of his people. Now God can be the champion of this church and he can be the champion of your family in any way that you need him to be. But we don't want him stepping forward to be our champion because he can't find any righteousness or leadership among our families or our church. This is an exceptional case of a very wicked church where there was no intercessor. We want intercessors. We want leaders. We want men that will put on breastplates of righteousness themselves. Aren't, aren't we told to do that somewhere in Ephesians chapter 6? Yes. To put on the whole armor of God? To stand in the evil day so that these sins don't take a church down? Yes. But as far as glorious language about the God that we worship in this church the God that I hope you love, the God that I hope you delight in, there can be hardly any better language. Now for a guy that likes a little bit of knights to think of God strapping on this armor in verse 17, a breastplate, a helmet, the garments, and a cloak, then these words, righteousness, salvation, vengeance, zeal vengeance according to their deeds accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries recompense to his enemies to the islands he will repay recompense a lot of the interpretation of these four verses hinges on the word islands if this was Nebuchadnezzar coming against the sinful Jews then what's the recompense to the islands doesn't fit, Pastor. If this is Jesus dying on the cross for us, what is the recompense to the islands? And why is it inserted this way right here in this context of hopelessness that when God looked at the state of the church, there was no one to deliver them? The islands play an important key to us in understanding these four verses. And I'm telling those of you that like to know how and why we apply certain sections of these prophecies in the way that we do. To the enemies, he will repay recompense. It is about vengeance. And if we don't get this clear, when we get to chapter 63, we're going to have one coming from Edom dipped in blood. And we have a song in our songbooks that goes off with Jesus being at the cross, and there's no cross in Isaiah 63. There's a crushing defeat of the Edomites by God again in this capacity. There was no one else to defeat them because the regathered remnant was small and so God did it for them. Verse 19 says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. East and west, God's going to be known. What God? Jehovah. How will he be known? Because his people Israel will be delivered out of Babylon and sent back with the king's endorsement of a new empire to rebuild a temple of worship to Jehovah. And God told his name in advance by a hundred years, and that man with his signature at the bottom of a proclamation said, The God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And that God was the God of the Jews whom he was releasing. And so Cyrus said to the world, the true religion that gives nations to men is the religion of Jehovah. And the whole earth shook at the tremendous upheaval. Go read Isaiah 13 about the overthrow of Babylon. It talks about the stars and constellations no longer giving their light because this was an earth-shattering event of Cyrus pulling off such a military victory and conquest, releasing the Jews freely to go back and having been told in advance by the prophets of this God that he would do it and named so. Cyrus put it in writing. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Could I take this? and stretch it to be the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles? Sure, I could if I was going to be a dishonest pastor with you and felt that I didn't have enough time to study, then you just spiritualize things. That's the easiest way to preach the Bible. Just spiritualize it all and turn it into Jesus dying for our sins. So easy. But we're going to do it God's way. And I know the context of Isaiah. I know the 40s, and so do you. And I know the islands, and so do you. And it was God delivering them out of Babylon, Babylonian captivity where they thought it was hopeless. Because if you read the indictment of 58 and then the indictment of 59 verses 3 through 15, it is hopeless. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no judgment, that there was no intercessor, there was no man. And remember, he has told us in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the situation of this event, this event was so serious that even if the five intercessors appeared, they couldn't save the nation. So when he says there's no intercessor, he's got to do it. He raised up Cyrus and he, led, he held Cyrus by the hand and opened the gates for him and made it happen. Which brings us to the last two verses of Isaiah 59. Verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So now we have something in perpetuity, meaning it's going to be perpetual, and what is in perpetuity is that the Redeemer came to Zion and turned their sins and iniquities away. And the Apostle Paul applied that in Romans 11, 25 through 28, as being the first coming of Jesus Christ to deliver the Jews from their sins. And the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. And it's just a wonderful passage that we've been over before in detail a few years ago. And verse 20 is quoted by Paul in Romans 11, 25 through 28, and the first part of 21. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah 27. But as for me, this is my covenant. And so we leap to the new covenant that Messiah instituted when he said, this cup is the New Testament, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is what God sent Gabriel to tell Daniel in response to his prayer in Daniel chapter 9. After Daniel confessed all those sins, the answer was 70 weeks are determined. 
and six tremendous spiritual blessings. And then he will make the covenant for a half a week. You know, then be cut off in the midst of the week. And so the Lord Jesus, for the 70th week, the covenant was made with the Jews and then Messiah was cut off. But that's Daniel chapter 9. This right here, the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Paul says, the Redeemer shall come out of Zion and unto them that turn from transgressions in Jacob. And Paul quotes it as, that will turn transgressions from, of Jacob, that will turn them away. Because when God brings about a reformation of religion and revives souls, he stops those people from sinning and causes them to turn from their own sins. And so both are true. It's like Psalm 68 versus Ephesians 4. In Psalm 68 it says, And God um, received, gifts for, received gifts for men. In Ephesians 4 it's gave gifts to men. Well, because Jesus is in the middle, he received gifts from the Father, and he in turn gave them to men. And in this particular passage, God brought about a tremendous revival. He raised up prophets for no other purpose than that little regathered group of people, Zechariah and Haggai, have no other ministry but to stir the people up that came back to godly living and to get that temple built for the worship of God. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. Paul tells us that 20 and 21 belong in the New Testament. And by looking at the first verse of the next chapter, as we enter into the 60s, we find out, oh, there is a transition. Now, if you say to me, I feel uncomfortable with two verses at the end of a chapter applying to something so drastically different, do you really? Then do you have a problem in Isaiah 52 when the last three verses apply to Isaiah 53? Do you remember? The last three verses of Isaiah 52 are entirely different. My servant shall deal prudently. Where did that come from? Well, God can use his prophets any way he wants. And the way their messages were collated together and put into the book of Isaiah, we end up with that one. How about 56? When we look at 56, I got to preach this to you last Sunday. I was about as happy as a preacher can be preaching about God comforting the eunuchs and God comforting the Gentile strangers. I, I mean, I, I love those verses. And then all of a sudden, all ye beasts of the field come to devour. What? Yea, all ye beasts in the forest. It's right there, 56.9. How can there be such a drastic change of theme? He wants to keep us on our toes. Do you know how we keep ourselves on our toes? We know 59, 20, and 21 are used by Paul for Jesus Christ. We know verse 18 tells us he's going to repay recompense to the islands. And so we know that there is an empire involved of many nations that make up many adversaries and enemies. And the great event of the middle part of Isaiah is the deliverance from Babylon by Cyrus the Persian. And so what a God we have. If we look at verses 16 through 19, that is my God. There is nothing too hard for him. This pandemic is not too hard for him. To him to enable and help President Donald John Trump is not too hard for him. For him to defend America in battle, for him to defend America even against our own foolishness with such a large fiscal stimulus, forgive me for calling it foolishness, God is able to save the nation. 
because this is, this is the God. And even when he looks and there isn't a deliverer, even when he looks and there isn't someone really standing for righteousness, he'll do it himself. But let's not make it so hard for him. Let's not disappoint him. Let's not have it said of us, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment in verse 15. Let's have him look on this church and see lots of judgment, meaning in the way of good judgment, justice, equity, truth, righteousness, all the things listed there, let's show him. And so that when he looks at us, he's not disappointed, but he will view us like Samuel, Noah, Moses, Daniel, and Job, and spare our nation because we intercede for our president and we intercede for our nation. And then let us never forget, we have seven more chapters, and those seven more chapters will be much along the lines of the first verse of the next chapter, the 60s. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Whose light? Since it says thy light, there's a redeemer in the last two verses of Isaiah 59, and he turned ungodliness and transgression away from Jacob, and he has perpetuated his spirit and his word in us forever. Back there last Sunday, we had some wonderful words. I create the fruit of the lips. I create the fruit of the lips. The message of the gospel was peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off. That's us Gentiles and to him that is near. That's the Jews, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. The new word, the new message was peace through a redeemer. Cyrus, typical of the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ who came as the Prince of Peace and made peace with God for us. And that gospel is in the church, considered as a man's descent, his children and his children's children, and those men that will live godly lives so that their children will be the repairer of the breaches and restorer of paths, they will always have that gospel message. And so the perpetuity of it for 2,000 years is in the world and we're part of it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.